Father, sometimes we are surprised by what a day will bring. And uh, inevitably, there are some guys who uh, experience that today. Uh, Sometimes those surprises are good news, and sometimes they're bad news. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes, Lord, we are just unprepared for the news that we hear. And we've all been through that. We've all experienced it. A phone can ring, and our lives can be uh, immediately changed. Sometimes... uh, Sometimes a letter brings news that alters the plans, the immediate plans for our future. We are grateful that you are a God who has never, ever been surprised by anything. Uh, You have uh, never panicked. You have never, uh, you you have never stumbled uh, trying to recoup your composure. You've never done that because you're God. And when we find ourselves in situations where that's precisely what we're doing, the only wise thing is to turn to you. You understand us. You created us. You know that we're just dust. We're just a bunch of average guys in here. And we are attempting to deal with life as it comes toward us. We, we thank you, Lord, that uh, what comes is part of your plan, the good and the bad Uh, You use it all, all of it you use, to make us and to shape us and to mold us. Uh, None of it is out of your control. None of it is, uh, is outside of your agenda. And the amazing thing about all this is that you have purposed whatever it is that comes into our lives uh, to work for our good and to work for our gain and to work for our advantage. It certainly doesn't seem that way when we're in the middle of it. But that's what you have promised in Romans 8.28. We do pretty well, Lord, when life is working. We do pretty well when our objectives are being met and when our goals are being achieved. But that's not always the season of life that we find ourselves in. Even those times of disappointment and of difficulty... uh, those times of setbacks, those times of frustration, and those times of anger. They are a necessary part of what you have planned for us. You've always got something in mind that uh, is deeper. You want to take us to the next level. And it's true in athletics. It's, It's true in any sphere of life that without pain there is no gain. And that is true in the Christian life. So we come to you for encouragement. We come to you, Lord, for uh, stability. We come to you to be steadied. We come to you for perspective. And we pray tonight, Lord, for each guy. You know us. You know everything about us. You know what no one knows, what no one else knows about us. You know the things we're even trying to hide. You know it all. And you understand us. You understand us from afar. You're not against us. You're for us. So we can be comfortable knowing that that you understand uh, every thought and every emotion and every frustration. 
So we come to you tonight, Lord. We, uh, we ask you to give us what we need. We don't know what we need. You do. So we'll trust you even with that. Give us the strength to just keep on going. Uh, perseverance is a big part of the Christian life. Just keep, keep our hands to the plow. When we don't feel like it, when we don't want to, when we're tired, when we're frustrated, we just keep following you. There's a lot to be said for that. We want to be those kind of men. So we pray these things that they would be accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it, it has been said that before God will work through a man, he will first work in a man. So oftentimes, we get anxious to be used by God. And that's a good thing, a desire to be used by him. We want our lives to count. Nobody in here wants to waste their lives. Nobody in here wants to reach the end and say, that was just one big, long waste of time. What in the heck did I do with my life? You know, there are a lot of guys that just flat out waste their lives. Uh, it is a tragedy. It is a shame. It is unnecessary. But it is remarkable how many times it happens. Uh, men waste their lives by poor decisions and by running away from wisdom and by just simply living selfishly. Uh, God has called us to something higher than that. And in order, in, in, in order to not waste our lives and to live our lives well and, and to do the work that he has ordained for us to do, um, it's going to require that he work in us. Uh, when we're young, we, we want everything to happen at once. We... Um, you know, I was thinking about, I was thinking this morning about, um, I was thinking about when I was in my uh, early 20s and I wasn't married and I wanted to be married. You know, if you're a young guy in your 20s and you're not married, you ought to, wanna, you ought to want to be married. Did you know that? There are a lot of guys in their 20s that, that are afraid of marriage and don't want to touch marriage because marriage involves commitment. And marriage involves responsibility. If you're a young single guy here tonight in your 20s, you ought to be eating responsibility for lunch. And you ought to be eating commitment for lunch. Uh, you don't run from it, you embrace it. Uh, that's what it means to be a man. A man makes a commitment and sticks to it. Uh, you say, but what if it gets hard? What, what, what if I make a commitment and then it gets hard? What do you mean, if? There's no if about it. It will. I, I, I don't care how good anything looks. It's marriage, it's a job, it's this, it's that. I don't care how good it looks, you're going to be disappointed, and it's not going to quite turn out the way that you had hoped. Well, that's where commitment comes in, you say. That's just how it works. But that doesn't mean you run away because it might get hard. It will be hard. But that's part of being a man. That's part of being a, uh, a man who follows Christ. 
Uh, he told us up front it would be hard. Uh, the, the Christian life is not an easy life. It is a hard life, regardless of what the yo-yos on Christian television say. It's not always prosperity. It is if you're an evangelist and you have everyone sending in their seed to your ministry <laughs> and sowing seed into your ministry, yeah, you'll do all right. You'll do quite well until you stand before the King of Kings and give an account. Um, Jesus said, in the world, you'll have an easy time. You remember that verse? I love that verse. Got it right up there on my refrigerator. He didn't say that. He said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Some translations say trouble. Same thing. You can count on it. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, not some, not a few, not one every four or five years, not one every decade. That's not what it says. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Christian life is a hard life. It's a difficult life. That's why it's such a good thing to read Pilgrim's Progress, that classic book that John Bunyan wrote over 300 years ago, because it's, you just follow the story of this guy Christian as he's on his way to the celestial city. And he, he finds himself in all kinds of difficult straits. You know why that's so good to read? Because that's what we're going to find ourselves in. It's not an easy road. It's not an easy ride. Uh, especially if you have a desire for God to use your life. If you want him to use you, before he works through you, he will first work in you. He will do the deep work and the hard work that involves tremendous pressure to fit you for what it is that he has for you to do in the future. You know, when we're in our 20s, for some reason today I was thinking about when I used to be 20. And I remember when I was in my 20s, I, I, I wanted to be married. I, I remember thinking to myself, I just want my own deal. I used to use that term. I just want my own deal. And what I meant by that, I wanted, I wanted a wife and I wanted kids and I wanted to get on with what God had called me to do. That's what I wanted. And now I've got it. And, and back then, every once in a while, someone was, would refer to me as a young man. Young man? Nobody calls me young man anymore. <laughs> it's a different place in life. And, uh, and, and I'm very grateful that I've got my own deal now. Got my wife, got my kids. Got, I'm very grateful. Uh, it doesn't happen... Um, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Um, but it goes by quickly, doesn't it? Most of the time it goes by quickly. Sometimes it goes by very slowly. It, it, it's, I, I think the older you get, the faster life goes by. But when you are in a particular difficult chapter of life, it tends to go by very, very slowly. When you're in a lot of pain... And when you're in a lot of frustration, and when your goals have not been realized, and when it seems like you're stuck where you are, 
It's like the clock slows down. If you have your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 2, we've been looking at the life of Moses. And we pointed out that Moses lived for 120 years. His life can be, um, could have been put on three, uh, if you will, DVDs, 40 years each. Uh, A lot happened in the first 40 years, a lot of success, an amazing beginning. Uh, Raised in the household of Pharaoh, even though his family were slaves in Egypt. Uh, really, uh, you see the sovereignty and the providence of God all over the hand of Moses in his first 40 years. He, uh, he is trained as a scholar. He is trained as a military leader. He is, uh, he is capable. He is competent. He is one who takes on responsibility and meets it. He doesn't run away from it. He has been put in a very strategic spot, and he understands that God has put him there in order to deliver his people out of slavery. And on his own, he attempts to pull off the exodus by himself at the age of 39. That's what we read about in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, when the Egyptian taskmaster was beating the Hebrew slave. Moses stepped in, killed the Egyptian official. He thought the people of Israel would understand that he was called by God to deliver them, they didn't understand. Now, as we pointed out, he was right about the mission. That was his mission. That is what God had intended for him to do. That's why God had put him in that position. But unfortunately, he was 40 years off schedule. See, he wanted it right then. So oftentimes, we'll have a desire, and it's a good desire. It's even a godly desire It's just the wrong time. But we don't understand that. We think it would be, this would be a real good thing for this to happen right now. And we don't understand why God doesn't allow it to happen right now. Well, his ways are not my ways. And his timing is not my timing. That's why we get so frustrated. Moses understood God's purpose, but he was significantly off on the timing. He wanted God to work through him. But God had to first work in him. So there you find the next 40 years as a result. He kills the guy. Pharaoh turns against him, and now Pharaoh's going to kill him. Instead of having the favor of Pharaoh, he's got his, he, hey, his picture's on every post office in the, in, in the nation of Egypt. So he takes off, that's verse 15, and he flees to a place called Midian. He went to Midian... If, if you ever go to Israel, and I hope you get a chance to go, if you go to Israel, you'll, take, um, you, you'll visit the Dead Sea. Perhaps you'll be staying in Jerusalem, and you'll get up early one morning, and Jerusalem is up in the mountains. You'll go down the highway into the valley. Uh, Jericho is right there. But instead of taking a left, Jericho, you take a right, and you go down about 40 miles, and, uh, and you're heading, it's just... There's nothing there. And you're heading down towards the Dead Sea. And it's hot and it's arid. And Midian was on the east side of the Dead Sea. It was uh, just really bad country. Desert. Hot. You get over 130 degrees in the summer. I'd been there in uh, right around the Dead Sea. I'd been there when it's been over 120 degrees in July. Uh, it's... it's, it's 
you don't want to go there uh, just to, you don't, you don't want to build a house there is what I'm trying to say. It's not where you want to settle. I mean, iguanas don't even live there. It, it's, it's not real pleasant territory. But that's where Moses went. He went to Midian. Why? Because nobody in their right mind would go to Midian. Now, what's going to happen is he's going to spend the next 40 years of his life there. Uh, the, the next 40 years of Moses' life, um, I think, are filled with regret and remorse. I, I think he is perpetually kicking himself. He had a golden opportunity. God had strategically placed him in the palace of Pharaoh with his influence, with his connections, with his network. And if he had not have been so impulsive, I'm sure this went through his mind, he had, he had one shot at setting those people free. And he blew it. He absolutely blew it. You couldn't pay me enough money to be a field goal kicker. Would you want that job? Personally, I wouldn't. I would not want to be a field goal kicker. Um, you got one shot. And the whole season's riding on it. Who's this guy for the Colts? Most successful field goal, highest kicking percentage in the history of the NFL. No brainer, 46 yards. Letterman had him on a few nights later. Did you know this? The guy who missed the field goal? Letterman had him on the program, and they went out in the street. And they set up goalposts, and the guy in street shoes kicked 46-yard field goal. With Dave holding the ball. Which he's lucky Dave didn't pull the ball out just as he went to kick it. But when push came to shove, he missed it. He had one shot to get them to the next round, to get them to the Super Bowl. He missed it. That's what happened to Moses. So Moses is finished. Something we've got to understand. See, we're reading the story of Moses, and you can read on ahead and see what... Moses had never read Exodus. <laughs> Moses knew nothing about Cecil B. DeMille. Or Charlton Heston. All Moses, he didn't know any of this stuff. He's just living life. All he knew was that he had failed. He was a failure. So he heads off to Midian in the middle of the desert, and, and his life radically changes. And we said last week that what he didn't realize is that God was just signing him up for an advanced degree. Uh, a, a degree that nobody in their right mind would ever sign up for. Uh, so what happens is God signs you up. Nobody in their right mind would ever take these courses. So, um, so God signed you up for these courses. Uh, it, it was a rough period. It, it, it was a very, very uh, difficult period. Um, it was a time of trauma in his life. He went from the palace to the pasture. For the next 40 years of his life, and if you'll look at Exodus 2, verse 15... And then if you look down to verse 25, uh, basically it talks about sheep and watering their flocks, and he meets this gal, and he gets married, and he has a son. And uh, 
That's the next 40 years of his life. That's it. There's not a whole lot to report. It's, it's a real short DVD. And you know why it's so short? Because nothing happened. Uh, he was finished, as far as he was concerned. His greatest days were behind him. Uh, he was simply just existing. He was simply just showing up every day, going to work. He was bored out of his mind. And I think he was full of regret. That's my guess. Um, Why, why does stuff like this happen to us? Uh, David Wells is a great theologian, and uh, uh, anything he writes, I read, and I read it usually more than once. His new book is called Above All Earthly Powers. I'm going to read you a shot from David Wells, okay? That's what he says. We think little about the world. We think about the things it imposes upon us. We must think about the workplace, about appointments we have made, people we will meet, and jobs that must get done. We must think about car maintenance and train schedules, neighbors and parents, life insurance and taxes, groceries and vacations, dangers and death. We cannot avoid the sudden painful emptiness left behind by a death, and we would not want to miss the moment when we, were, when we are allowed to enter a small child's enchanted world. In a thousand ways every day, we think about the world of which we are a part, the world we experience. We think about what we must give it, do for it, do with it, or do without it, and we think about how we will use it or how we wish we could use it. We do not, however, often think about the world at a deeper level. We no more wonder about it than we do about the sun or the moon. We take it as a given like the fact that Tuesday has always followed Monday, May has always followed April, summer has always followed winter, and in New England, the Red Sox, as far as memory records, have always faded in the fall just as the leaves are coming into their full glory. Obviously, he wrote this before last year. That the world might have been different from what it is, that it might yet be different, that the West might yet succumb to its own self-induced sicknesses and like a worn-out old dinosaur topple over and die, making the species finally extinct, seems inconceivable. Thinking about these things seems as worthless as pondering under what circumstances water might be induced to flow uphill. The world does not strike us as a particularly dangerous place here in the West. There are pockets of lawlessness, we know, streets that should not be walked at night, and there are new kinds of lawbreakers, like the white-collar thieves who work with computers and who have made our sense of security a little less robust. Yet the West in general, and America in particular, is to us a place of plenty of opportunity and of choices, not a place where we feel greatly endangered. We certainly do not think of it as a place where we can lose our own souls. Do we? Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and, anybody know? Lose his own soul. You know where Moses was at the age of 39? He'd gain the whole world. He was on top. 
He was in the most uh, powerful family on the face of the earth. He was, he was an inside guy. He was a golden boy. He had a resume that would knock your socks off. He was a can't-miss guy. He had everything that you could possibly want. Moses had gained the whole world. Um, he loved the Lord. He was committed to the Lord, but he was young. Uh, when you say, well, was 39 that young? Well, when you're going to live to be 120, 39 is young. Uh, he was not seasoned. Isn't it amazing? Uh, I, I like what Will says. We, we don't think deeply. Because life, life is so busy and life is so frantic. And we've we got to take our cars in. And you take them in and they don't fix it right. And you've got to take it back. And then you've got appointments and you've got this. And you've got IRS stuff. And you've got tax payments and quarterlies. And you've got tuition. And you've got this. And you've got retirement. And you've got you know, family issues. And you've got health issues. You got, uh, it's, just, it's just nonstop. It's just nonstop. So it's hard to think about life deeply. So sometimes, sometimes what God does is that God steps in and he removes us from the normal flow and events of life. And what it does is it shocks us. Uh, this, can be a, uh, this can be a career interruption. This can be a layoff. This can be a business you start and it doesn't work. And you're in between. Uh, it, it can be uh, being in the hospital for several months. Uh, it can be your wife getting ill. Uh, it can be a rebellious child. It can be a divorce in a family. What, what, what happens is, is that suddenly you get blindsided. And the normal events of life, you're, you're doing them. But you're doing them differently because, because you've been hit so hard, you, you are suddenly thinking very, very deeply about your life. And that is a very good thing. The middle 40 years of the life of Moses, uh, I am convinced that he pretty much thought he was finished. Uh, yeah, you know, how do you ever get that back again? I mean, how do you do that? It, uh, you know, you don't go to another country with your resume and say, hey, I used to be Pharaoh's grandson, and can we work something out here? Uh, be an ambassador, whatever you need, you know? Uh, it didn't work that way. He was finished. He was done. He was, uh, he was just living out his days. But um, what happens is you get to chapter 3, and he doesn't know this. But his life is about to dramatically change. Uh, this is one of those surprises that I mentioned in my prayer. Uh, life, is, life gets pretty mundane, and you think you got it kind of wired how it's going to be, and maybe you come to grips with it. Even if you're not real comfortable with it, you, you kind of settled in, and maybe you got a sense of resignation to where you are, uh, and you think you're going to be there. I'm sure that's what Moses felt. But then what happens is, in the middle of being in this desert for 40 years now, 40 years, just walking around, this guy who was a great leader of men in Israel, uh, uh, in Egypt, did I say Israel? Yeah, 
in Egypt. He, uh, he's just out walking one day. He's just doing his normal thing with the sheep. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. Man, that's exciting, isn't it? Hey, guys, you know what? You know what we're going to do? You know what we're going to do this quarter? You know what the next 90 days we're going to do? We're going uh, to go over to the west side of the wilderness. We haven't been there in about six months. We, we were over on the east side. And uh, before that, we were on the north side. You remember that? And, uh, and then just prior to that, we were down on the south side. But uh, what we're going to do now, and, and, you know, and this is a big deal. They're excited about this. We're going over to the, uh, let's go over to the west side of the wilderness. You know, the wilderness is pretty much a drag, no matter what part of the wilderness you're in. If you're in Midian, it's not real exciting, whether you're north, east, west, or south. It is dull. It is boring. There is nothing happening. Uh, you're just simply surviving. That's all you're doing. Sometimes life's like that, isn't it? You're just surviving. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, before I get to verse 2, because verse 2 is a surprise, and it's a huge change. Let's talk just a little bit more about the 40 years. The, the problem, the, these, these middle 40 years that he went through, um, I, I've been reading C.S. Lewis's uh, book, Surprised by Joy, which is the biography of his early life. You know, Lewis was, uh, well, now you know about Narnia and the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Roared Robe and all that. Uh, Lewis was, uh, um, you know, he grew up in a home in Ireland and his father was an attorney and his mother was a great woman and a wonderful mother and then she got cancer and died when he was very young. Um, and his world fell apart when his mother died. Uh, he uh, wound up becoming an atheist, uh, was a brilliant man, taught at Oxford and then at Cambridge, um, uh, well, had no interest in Christianity. But what happened was uh, God was interested in him. And uh, C.S. Lewis, as he describes his coming to faith in Christ, uh, he says he came kicking and screaming. He really didn't want to come. He really had no interest in the Lord. But the hound of heaven was after him. And uh, the Lord used him in some remarkable ways. Uh, he, uh, uh, during World War II, he was asked to give a series of radio addresses on the BBC on Sunday nights about Christianity. BBC doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> but when you're being bombed every night and people are dying, you need some truth. And you don't need somebody to read out of the Koran. You need someone to read and tell you what's going on out of the Word of God. And uh, he'd written this little... Actually, he hadn't written it. He'd written an article. And this producer at the BBC read it and said, hey, would you do a series of things? So suddenly C.S. Lewis is being heard on Sunday evenings on the BBC. And that's all there was to listen to. And he took that series of uh, talks and he turned it into a book called Mere Christianity, M-E-R-E, -E, Mere Christianity. I, I have a friend, a guy by the name of Eric Sigward, 
And Eric uh, grew up in uh, New York City and a very brilliant guy. Uh, went to Harvard and then went to Oxford and in the late 60s, got into the whole hippie thing and got into a lot of drugs, got into a lot of acid, a lot of LSD. And uh, he'd received a, um, a scholarship to work on his doctorate at Stanford. But over that summer, he had taken so much acid, he, he lost his ability to think rationally. And it was all he could do to make his way to Palo Alto. And uh, he, was, he was running one day. He was jogging in a park. And as he was finishing his run, there was a little playground there and little kids and, you know, moms. And, and uh, he's just cooling down. And this little girl was standing there. And she looked up at him and, um, and said, do you know Jesus? And, and it just startled him. And he, he said, well, no. She said, you need to know him. And then she just kind of walked off. It really kind of threw him. Big, you know, big-time scholar, you know, intellect, going to Stanford, full-ride, Ph.D., Oxford, Harvard, you know. And uh, a little bit later, someone gave him a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And I remember Eric telling me, he said, as I began to read that little booklet, he said, uh, it was so rational, and it was so logical, and it was so clear, I could feel my mind healing. It literally put my mind back together. And it was shortly thereafter that he came to know Christ, kicking and screaming just as Lewis did. Had no interest in Christ. When his mother died, his dad sent him and his brother off to a boarding school. And as Lewis says, if my dad had tried with all of his might, he couldn't have picked a worse school in all of England. It was so bad, and the cruelty from the headmaster was so perverse that as children were pulled out of the school and the school was closed, 18 months later, the headmaster was committed to an institution for the mentally insane. Uh, he would whip boys. And one of the things that he would do is that he would take a particular boy to whip him, and he would put him in the far end of a room and pull his pants down, and the boy would kneel and hold on to the back of a chair. And instead of just swatting him, he would then go to the other side of the room and run as fast as he could in order to get momentum so that when he laid the lash, it would have the maximum impact. That is, that is a perverse man. Uh, the chapter that Lewis describes his years in that school is called Concentration Camp. It, it, it'll break your heart to read it. He, he talks about uh, how he got through that. And he said the way you get through it is, um, is that you have hope that the term only would last for 12 weeks. And then you'd go home for Christmas. And so for those 12 weeks that you were there, you would just hope and hope and hope that the 12 weeks would go by quickly. And then, and then they would, and you'd go home. And then it was time to go back. Then at one point he says this, life at a vile boarding school is in this way a very good preparation for the Christian life in that it teaches one to live by hope. 
You know what the danger is? As we go through the hard chapters of life, you know what the danger was to Moses as he was in that 40-year waiting period? You know what the danger was? That he'd lose hope. The great enemy of the Christian is hopelessness. That's the great enemy. But you see, if we have hope, if we have hope that one day things are going to change, if we have hope that one day things are going to get better, uh, that's one of the things about, uh, about heaven. I, I've been reading Randy Alcorn's book again, his book, Heaven. It's really a remarkable book. It's a staggering book, actually about the greatness of heaven and what's, what, what heaven is going to be like. And so often we say, well, you know, the Bible really doesn't say that much about heaven. And Randy's response to that, and his book is about that thick, his response to that is, well, you know, maybe we haven't really looked closely enough at what it does say. And, and the more I read that book, the more I see how ignorant I have been of what the Scripture says about heaven. It is our hope. And can I tell you guys something? What, what encourages me is that is that not one day I'm going to get a robe and be floating around on a cloud uh, strumming some harp. That really doesn't excite me <laughs> when I'm going through a difficult time. And the only time I wear a robe is when I go to a hospital for an exam. You know, and it's kind of embarrassing. That's not what it's going to be like. It's, it's going to be remarkable. It's going to be incredible. There's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth. Uh, I can't get off on that. But there is a hope that we are supposed to have. Uh, When you lose hope, you're in trouble. Uh, But sometimes you get overwhelmed because you take so many shots in a row, you think it's always going to be this way. And that's why what happened to Moses on this particular day, when he says, hey guys, guess what? We're going over to the west side. "Ah, West side. What side of the wilderness? Oh, that's great. There'll be some snakes over there we haven't seen in a year. So let's go over to the west side. So they're going over to the west side. It's just what this guy does. He gets up every day. He gets the sheep. You know, he drives down the tollway. He comes back. It's just a mundane life. So they're going over to the west side. Verse 2. And this just comes out of nowhere. It's just like kind of, it's just nowhere. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. What? Say what? Let's say that again. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. He'd not seen this before on the west side. This was new. This was a new event. This, this, this was a surprise. Uh, Interesting, isn't it, that Lewis would entitle his book Surprised by Joy? It came in the last place he would expect it to come from. Uh, He'd he'd grown up in church. He knew about church. Um, I I read a quote from David Lloyd-Jones, who was one of the prime ministers of England, um, about 100, not that long ago, maybe 80 years ago. And and he said one of the reasons, uh, as a kid, he always dreaded heaven was that he thought heaven was going to be just a perpetual church service. And he hated church. He had to get up. He had to wear a stiff collar. He had to wear a tie. He didn't. He had to wear stiff. He didn't like going to church. He was just a kid. When he thought of heaven, he thought it was just going to be one long, boring 
dull church service. That's not much to look forward to. I think God loves to surprise us with his goodness and his grace and his mercy. He knows exactly what we're thinking. He knows when we're bored. He knows when we're dull. He knows when we're turned off. He he knows when we've lost purpose. So here's Moses just going about his stuff. It's what he does every day. It's what he's done for 40 years. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. He looked, behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why this bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. He said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. Hadn't Moses killed one of those taskmasters? For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. That doesn't mean a lot to us, but it meant a lot to him. He knew exactly what he was talking about. That was up north and west of the Dead Sea. That was good land. That was a great land. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing there. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He wasn't asking that 40 years prior, was he? See, 40 years before, he knew who he was. He was somebody. He had a PhD. He'd been to all the schools. He had all the connections. He, he, he had the military uh, uh, history of, of, of being a warrior that rescued the city of Memphis from the Ethiopians. I, I mean, he knew who he was. He was capable. He was confident. He was prepared. He was good at what he did. He was so good that he attempted to do this very thing on his own. And now 40 years later, God circles back. You know what's interesting to me in the scriptures is how oftentimes you see somebody's dream die. And then you see it resurrected. That happened. That's why you read these stories about these guys in the scriptures. And, and they would have a dream. They'd have a, uh, Joseph had a dream. You remember that as a kid? Joseph had a dream. Now, he wasn't real smart because he shared it with his family. But he, again, he was young. He was just a kid. And what was the dream? He didn't conjure it up. He didn't make it up. 
It actually happened to him. He had a dream that his family would bow down to him. Well, you know, you usually don't share something like that. Because your brothers will just beat the crud out of you if you say stuff like that to them. Especially when you're the next to the youngest. And you got ten older brothers. Um, they laughed at him. They scorned him. Let me ask you something. Did that dream die? Yeah. Let me ask you something. Did that dream resurrect? Yeah. What was Moses' dream? His dream was to lead the people out of a horrible situation. That was his dream. Did that dream die? Yeah. Did that dream resurrect? Yeah. But notice the difference in Moses. Uh, What's going to happen is God is going to give him this mission, a, a mission that he had no problem with before. A mission that he was very, very comfortable with. A, 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 message, a, a, a mission that he felt very, very capable to take on. But, but, but you see this transformation that's happened in this guy. He went from secure to insecure. You ever meet somebody who's just real secure? They seem real together and within themselves. And You know, if enough stuff happens to that person, they'll change. They just have never been leveled. They've never been devastated. Uh, even the big, uh, there's a stretch of highway where I'm familiar with because it, it was where I was raised in California from, from Bakersfield, um, from Bakersfield going to Los Angeles. And you're coming out of the San Joaquin Valley uh, and you're going up the hill, or if you're coming from L.A., you're coming out of the mountains and coming down the hill. And they would call that the ridge route. And I can remember as a kid, we'd be coming down the ridge route at night. We'd visit my grandparents in Los Angeles, and we're coming back to Bakersfield. And you're coming out of those mountains, and they have these escape roads for, for the big tractor trailers. Because what happens is they'd lose their brakes. And, and they'd have these real steep inclines... Uh, just loaded with sand uh, so these guys could stop. And I can remember more and more than one occasion, uh, we're coming up on a, on a truck, and you can see the sparks coming off the brakes, and you can smell it. And the guy was losing his brakes. And uh, horrific accidents on, on the ridge route. Very common occurrence. Um, so what does that have to do with Moses? <laughs> I don't know. But I think if we wait for a minute, I'll figure it out. So you had the ridge route, and you had the brakes. You had the escape route. Thank you. I'm glad you were paying attention. Those trucks often would be uh, loaded with uh, heavy machinery. Uh, those car transports, they're carrying six, seven, eight cars. They got a lot of weight. Before you go down the ridge route in one of those trucks, you pull over and you weigh. And they'd weigh those trucks because as big as those trucks were and as strong as those trucks were, those trucks, even those big trucks, 
had a limit that they could not go past. Because if, it, if they did, it'd break down. Someone who's very confident, very secure, very capable, uh, they've just never gone over their limit. Moses went over his limit. He got so weighed down, he got hit so hard that he went from secure to insecure. He went from uh, capable to uh, uh, absolute uh, uh, self-loathing. I mean, this guy changed. His personality completely and totally changed. Uh, he went from being a leader to being a loser in his own eyes. So what happens in this dialogue with the burning bush? We're going to see this. We're going to see what happened to Moses through through the difficulty and through the hardship. Uh, in three eleven, uh, you know, God said, hey, "Here's the mission." And nobody says to the Lord, "He says, who am I?" Well, He wasn't saying that forty years before. You, you, you know what? You know what you see there. You see a very serious loss of self esteem. Uh, he needs to get into a public school <laughs> where, where they could build this self-esteem. I mean, that's the purpose of public schools, as you know. It's not to teach you. used to be to teach you to read. What is the three R's? Reading, writing, arithmetic. Not anymore. It, it's, your, it's your self-esteem so that you would feel good about yourself and and it's not so much, that Johnny, that you can't answer the questions on math. We don't want to make you feel bad. We don't want you to be ashamed. And before, they'd slap you around for a few minutes and, you know, go stand in the corner and work that out, idiot. They don't do that anymore. At least that's how they did it with me. This guy had a very, very high self-esteem. Forty years ago, he wasn't asking. He wasn't asking. Who am I to do such a thing? He knew who he was. You see the change? And can I again remind you of something? God had a work for this guy to do. But before God can work through you, he must work in you. See, you know what Moses, you know what the problem was with Moses? I remember hearing Chuck saying this about 25 years ago on that tape I listened to. I remember him saying that, you know, some of us are just too capable for our own good. We're just too good at what we do. We're so good at what we do that God can't use us. Uh, if you jump down to 313, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He wants to know, What shall I say to them? He wasn't worried about what he was going to say before. He never thought about what he was going to say. He just went out and did it. That's how confident he was. He was so confident that he could take two million people out of Egypt and break the back of their economic system. Why was slavery such a big deal in the South? Why was it fought? Because, because slavery was integral to the whole economic system in the South. You take away those slaves, and you're taking away all kinds of profit. It was built on slavery. You take two million Israelis out of the Egyptian economy, you got a problem. 
So what was he going to say? He wasn't worried about what he was going to say because he was so gifted. But now he's worried about what he's going to say. Uh, go to chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. See, he's given God all these reasons he can't do what he already attempted to do. Now, you know that we're skipping over the Lord's response to him. When, when the first resistance that he throws up to the Lord in 3.11, who am I? The Lord's response is in verse 12. I will be with you. That's all you need to know. What was it that Jesus said? Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's John 15. See, at some point, we all got to learn that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not even what you think you can do. Not even what you're good at doing. Apart from me, you can't do it. That's why all of us, at some point or another in our lives, we're going to have the rug pulled out from under us, just as he had the rug pulled out from under him. It's not because God's against you. It's because God does want to use you. But you've got to learn, you've got to learn where your power and where your confidence really comes from. Uh, his second resistance, 313, what shall I say to them? And, and see, really, what you got there, this guy doesn't have any self-confidence. Man, he was oozing with self-confidence before. And notice what the Lord says. Say, I am has sent me. I am. I am that I am. That, that, that was the name of God. Say that I am has sent me. Once again, it goes back, hey, the Lord's with you. The I am, the one who has always existed is with you. The third, the third uh, uh, resistance. What, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? So then God gives him three signs. Let's look at the signs. Verse 2, the Lord said, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it to the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. You know what's interesting about that? You don't pick up snakes by their tail, do you? See, I think God loves to do this. I think what God does is he takes self-confident, self-assured men, and then he crushes them, and they lose their confidence, and they begin to question themselves, and you begin to wonder if you have what it takes, and, and then he's going to step in and rebuild you, but the way that he will do it is not the way it's supposed to be done. You don't pick up snakes by the tail. Sometimes God asks us to do something that doesn't make sense. But he's testing you to see if you'll obey. So he reaches out, grabs the snake by the tail. And what happened? It became a staff again in his hand. Now, that's pretty good, don't you think? That's pretty good. But he's not done yet. He says in verse 6, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. He put his hand into his bosom again, took it out. It was restored like the rest of his flesh. That's even better. 
Here's a third one. See, and, and what's this all about? This is the God who will be with you. I'm the one who will go with you. See, before you did this on your own. What, what did he do before the scripture said? He looked this way and he looked that way, but he didn't look this way. What God's saying to him is, now, hey, you look up to me. Let me show you what I'll do. So he turns the snake, the staff into a snake, back to a staff. His hand is leprous. Now it's not leprous. Um, verse 9. But if they will not even believe these two signs, or he what you say, you shall take some of the water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, would you not think that he'd start to get the idea that God was with him and things were going to be different? But he doesn't, because note the next thing. He's got one more resistance. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Okay, turn over to Acts 7.22 very quickly. So what's his excuse this time? Uh, I'm not a communicator. I don't express myself well. I'm kind of slow. I kind of stutter. I'm not the guy to represent you. When Stephen is speaking of Moses before the Jewish council, and he's given them a history lesson, he says in Acts 7.22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. Catch this. And he was a man of power in words. But see, what happened was he got fearful. He got so fearful. And, and this guy was so confident. You know what the Lord had to do to this guy? This Lord ran him in the jiffy lube, and the first thing he did was he pulled his drain plug. And all that self-confidence and all that self-esteem and all that, uh, you know, the scriptures say, say, don't think of yourself higher than you should. Sometimes we do. And, and, and God just needed to pull the drain plug and all that needed to come out. And it took 40 years for it to, to get empty. And now what the Lord's going to do, he's going to put the plug back in. And now he's, what he's going to do, he's going to fill up his crankcase. But not with himself. He's going to fill it up with who God is. See, Moses, Moses, here's what I want you to see. Moses went so far down, he lost all perspective on who he was. Sometimes when we taste defeat and we have a series of setbacks, we swing the other way. Sometimes guys think of themselves more highly than they should. Sometimes what happens is we lose all perspective and we think we're nothing. We think we're dirt. We think, we're, we think we have nothing to offer. I've seen guys get so depressed that they think, they'd be be- they think their family would be better off if they were to be dead. And some of you guys have even thought that. Because you've made decisions and you've gotten yourself and your family into a situation that is so bad and you don't see any way out, and the thought is, they'd be better off if I wasn't even alive. That's a complete loss of perspective. See, that's where God steps in and takes a guy and now begins to rebuild him. See, that's, once again, see, when you're at that point, you think you're finished. You're not finished. Now, now, you're ready to begin. That's the starting point. When you're, is it possible there are some guys in here and your dreams are dead, dead as a doornail? 
Well, maybe, just maybe, God's going to do that. Or, or do something better than what you had dreamed. What is it that Ephesians says? Now to him who is able to do, exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. I was driving over here. And I was thinking about this. And I was thinking about... Um, I went through two periods of time where, and I've shared this with you guys before, I went through two different periods of time where I took some pretty good shots and uh, had some setbacks and, and um, went through some real deep depression. And uh, it was not a pleasant time. Neither one of those experiences, and one followed the other. I got out of one and we went, we moved to another location thinking, oh, oh, look at what God's doing and this is all wonderful and this is going to change everything. We got there and kawako. And, and when that happened to me, I remember thinking, I, I was sure the Lord led me. And you know what? He did lead me. He did lead me. That was the most careful decision I'd ever made in my life. He did lead me. He led me. It was like a plane coming into the gate at DFW. I mean, you couldn't miss it. There were guys over here. There were guys here. There were guys by the nose. Come on here. Right on in here. Right on. And I went. But if I had known what was waiting for me, I never would have gone. But see, there was a work that he needed to do in my life. And when it all fell apart, again for the second time, I was absolutely devastated. And then... We moved to Dallas. And I had just written, I had just written this book, this point man book. And back then, publishers wouldn't write books to men. I mean, they wouldn't publish books to men because men, any men didn't read books. This was before people. I mean, they literally would tell you, we don't publish books to men. If you talk to a publisher in the late 80s, they would tell you that. And all you had to do was look. There, were no, there was not a men's section of books in a Christian bookstore. They didn't publish books to men. But somehow, I had to write this thing, and I wrote it in my bedroom under great, great pressure. It's a long story. And we're coming down here, and we're starting this new ministry. And I remember driving down here. Mary said to me, she said, you know, Steve, I was going to do all these family conferences. And Mary said, you know, Steve, I think you ought to focus on men. And I remember looking at her and going, focus on men? I said, nobody focuses on men. She said, yeah, that's why you ought to do it. I said, I'm not focusing on men. That's too narrow. That's too narrow of a niche. She said, yeah, but that's your heart. You're always talking to guys. And you talk to mixed audiences, you talk to the guys. I said, that, so what? I said, I can't get that narrow. Nobody does a ministry to men. I've got to be more broad. I've got to be... She said, well, that's fine. I hate it when she always sees it before I do. <laughs> so for about a year, I'm doing these different family calls and all that stuff. And then I remember Point Man came out and Irving Bible Church, some guys there, he said, hey, Steve, would you come and do a conference just for our guys? And I said, I've never done that. They said, well, would you come and do it? And I said, yeah. 
And there were maybe 150 guys. There was kind of a test run. So I took my stuff and I did it. And I remember there was this guy that came up to me afterwards, Tom Miller. And he says, Steve, he said, hey, this is, man, this, this is, we got to get this stuff out here. And I said, yeah, okay, oh, well, great, you know. And he said, I'd like to do this in Fort Worth. I said, oh, good. I said, okay. He said, how about if I give you a call? I said, yeah. He said, we'd like to bring this to our church. I said, where do you go to church? He, goes, he told me some Lutheran church. I didn't even know there were Lutherans in Texas. <laughs> I said, okay, well, that's fine. And he called, you know, and so he said, hey, I think we could get, I said, I think we could get four or 500 guys. And I'm thinking, he's crazy. I didn't tell him that. And he said, maybe I could meet with your staff. I said, I don't have a staff. I didn't even have a staff to throw down on the ground. I, I mean, I have nothing. But he said, I think we could do this. And I said, well, great. I didn't want to discourage the guy. And then a couple months later, he calls me and he said, hey, you know what, Steve? I got to thinking there's no way we can handle all the guys in our church. So I went and rented the Will Rogers Auditorium. And I said, you did what? He said, I went over and rented the Will Rogers Auditorium. I said, how many is that seat? He said, 1,800. And I'm thinking, and this guy was the assistant head coach for TCU football under Jim Wacker. This guy was not dumb. But I was thinking he was a little dumb. He thought he could get 1,800 guys in there. They didn't know who I was. And you know what? He didn't get 1,800 guys in there. He got about 1,650. And the next year, he had 1,800. As long as I live, I will never, ever forget walking in there. And that, and that place was jam-packed. And I was supposed to speak to those guys six times. <laughs> and if you had asked me a year before what God was doing in my ministry, you know what I would have told you? I would have told you. I mean, I could have told you the stock answer. But if you were a friend of mine really close, you know what I'd really tell you? I'd tell you nothing. Nothing. Worst year of my life. I should have stayed in California. That's how I felt. Now to him who was able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or think. <laughs> I'll tell you one more. I'm writing this book up, up, up in my bedroom, this point man book, and I get stuck. And I'm trying to work this, you know, and I'm trying to think, okay, you know, and, and to pump myself up. You know what I think about? I, this, is, this is the truth. And I, I never said this to anybody. I never said this to Mary. To try and psych myself up, I, I, I actually prayed. I said, you know, Lord, if there'd be any way that this is, if there'd be any way you could get this book into the hands of 100,000 guys. And the reason I said 100,000, because I knew what it, I'd been to the Rose Bowl when it was full. My dad took me and my brothers to the Rose Bowl in 66 when Michigan State was playing UCLA. And I saw that stadium with 102,000 people in it. And I thought to myself, I'm absolute, this is the absolute truth. If someone called me and said, Steve, we've got a stadium full of guys and we want you to come and speak. This was in 1989. 
we got a stadium full of guys who want you to come to speak. And since that'll never happen, Lord, if you could maybe get this book to 100,000 guys, see, I can envision what that would look like. Maybe three years later, maybe four years later, in the same week, I got a call. And I say, I hope you know, guys, I'm saying this to give glory to God. I have found that God is really good to dumb guys. That's, that's, my, that's what I've discovered in life. But about four years later, I got a call from the publisher and said, hey, Steve, you know, we just wanted you to know, point man just passed 100,000. Wow. Man, I remember that prayer I prayed. And then I got a call from Promise Keeper saying, hey, Steve, are you clear on this date to speak at the Charlotte Motor Speedway? Because we think we're going to have 100,000 guys there. And it was a, they didn't have 100,000. They only had 73,000. It was kind of a real disappointment. <laughs> but, but, but in one week, I got those two calls. If I got a call from a group saying, would you speak at a football stadium? And since that'll never happen, it did happen. That's God, guys. That's God. And he just doesn't do that for guys that are preachers. He does that for guys that he loves and guys that love him. Roger works for a company, has a company. His family, National Rights, your congressman. You know the story of that company and the impact they've had around here. And it started with a vision that he put in Roger's father's heart. And the impact that company has is amazing. Here's a business guy that gets this thing from the Lord and steps out on faith and God loves to do it. He loves to do it. Just wants us to trust him. Any of this make sense? You got a little hope? Maybe just a little? Good. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, that you're so great and you're so good. We, uh, yeah, do we get disappointed? Yeah, we do. Do we get our hearts broken? Yep. But it's for a reason, if we'll listen, if we'll be trained by it, if we'll respond, if we won't fight you, if we will yield. To Moses' credit, as much as he didn't want to do it, he went. He went kicking and screaming as C.S. Lewis went kicking and screaming. And that's how most of us have come in. Lord, I'm so thankful it doesn't depend on us. It depends on you. Everything we have is a result of your grace. The fact that we can blink our eyes and there's moisture in our eyes is grace. That comes from you. We assume it will always be there. And if it is, it's because you gave it to us. It's not because of evolution. We are completely dependent on you. Uh, Give us hope tonight. Give us hope that the hard times are for a reason. Before you work through us, you will work in us. We yield to your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.